You're listening to WBAI New York. Stay strong and keep listening. City Trauma Code to WBAI. I am Dr. Simon Fitzgerald, a Brooklyn trauma surgeon and surgical intensivist. And I am Dr. Cassandra Raphael, an adult and child psychiatrist. Welcome to Trauma Code. Together we will focus on healing of mind, body, and community from trauma. We'll discuss how wellness fits into the culture at large. Join us on Monday at 2 p.m. on WBAI. To Trauma Code. This is Dr. Simon Fitzgerald in studio. Uh, as you heard, a uh, Brooklyn trauma surgeon and surgical intensivist. Uh, and that was, of course, uh, The Funky Drummer by uh, James Brown, of course. Um, and I'm playing that today. Uh, last night was the Grammys. I don't know if anybody watched that who listens to my show, but I saw a little bit of it. A friend of mine was there in person, and uh, they, I, I don't like medleys, um, but they had this huge medley for the 50th. Um, anniversary of what they call the foundation of hip hop going back to 1973 uh that mythical party what was it on Sedgwick Avenue in the Bronx with Cool Herc uh at the Wheels of Steel and so they had um a a whole uh medley of a dozen artists at least if not more of all over the country going back to you know Ice T and and that uh, first generation New York stuff, and uh, you know, this is the survivors of hip hop. But anyway, I can that's obviously not hip hop, that um, James Brown album. And Reggie can tell me what year that it's from because I don't know offhand. Uh, uh, offhand, I think it's 1971, 1972. And something like that. And yeah. so that became one of the fundamental breakbeats of hip hop. Yes. Um, the so. Clyde uh drum beat. Yeah, that's it, 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 it became a staple. For sure, and yeah. and not hip hop itself, maybe proto hip hop, maybe a pillar, maybe the cornerstone. Um, but uh, just I wanted to play that, um, and uh, it was the last minute I had this idea to to put us uh, our introduction on top of that, just to recognize the fifty years of hip hop uh, and the Grammys, and of course um, the uh, uh, I think Trevor Noah named the greatest of all time last night. Uh, it was uh, Beyonce who won more Grammys than anybody else. I don't know how many that is or who won another. I have no uh, knowledge of the history of that uh, organization or that that prize. But anyway, that's the truth, and we'll hear some some of her music. And I only know that because uh, my wife, Dr. Raphael, my co-host, uh, who can't be in studio today, uh, uh, certainly uh, tipped my hat, turned my ears towards that, uh, what was going on last night. But today we have another kind of last-minute addition to uh, the show on Trauma Code. 
uh, Dr. Aaron Diaz, who's been doing work on uh, disparate outcomes uh, uh, in surgical, uh, you know, surgical outcomes, people who've had surgery and how the neighborhood where somebody is from really um, can influence their outcomes no matter what hospital or anything else that they go to. So, uh, Reggie, if we can get uh, Dr. Diaz on the line. Dr. Diaz, can you hear us? Are you with us? Yeah, I'm here. Can you hear me? Yeah, we got you loud and clear. Thank you for joining us, Dr. Diaz. Sorry about that little technical hiccup, but you are joining us on Trauma Code. This is Dr. Simon Fitzgerald in studio in New York City in Brooklyn, New York on WBAI. I am, of course, I'm a Brooklyn trauma surgeon uh, working uh, not only to treat but to end violence and violent injuries. And uh, one of the things that we run into no matter what our specialty is, how racism, and not only racism, but a legacy of racism, a legacy of inequality, uh, impacts the people we work with day to day. So, Dr. Diaz, um, tell us a little bit about uh, you and your collaborators have been looking at this question of, uh, based on the neighborhood level, how does, you know, we know America is very segregated um, by housing. So how does the neighborhood that you're from uh, introduce uh, your outcome? But before we get into those details, uh, just introduce yourself and tell us uh, where you're from and, and what kind of work you do clinically. Yeah, thank you for uh, having me, Dr. Fitzgerald. It's a real honor and pleasure to join you today. Um, so I am a general surgery resident, uh, so I'm still in my training uh, at Ohio State University, but I'm also a researcher and I focus on um, healthcare policy at the University of Michigan Center for Healthcare Outcomes and Policy. So myself and a couple of my collaborators um, have, you know, been looking at the effect of one's neighborhood on how they access care and um, what their outcomes from that care that they're able or not able to access is. Um, and, you know, as surgeons, one of the things that we focus on is, uh, you know, the continuum of, of surgical care. So, you know, everything from, you know, pre-hospital presentation all the way to, you know, full recovery from, from your operation. Um, so, you know, as we take a deeper dive into kind of some of the questions that we've been asking um, and have started to answer, I just kind of want to clarify, you know, we'll refer to the neighborhood, you know, quite a lot um, in our conversation. But, you know, when I when I say the neighborhood, what I really mean is, is the people who live in that neighborhood. Um, and, you know, another caveat is a couple of years ago on Twitter, I saw someone say, you know, zip codes don't kill people. Racism does. Um, so so again, when we refer to zip codes and neighborhoods, um, you know, it's, it's a little bit of a proxy for, um, you know, some of the topics we'll touch on, like structural racism, you know, intern interpersonal relationships in those neighborhoods. And of course, the people who live in those neighborhood. So, you know, I don't want the audience to, um, um, you know, get confused that or, or, you know, understand that I'm misrepresenting, uh, you know, the, the neighborhoods. What, I, what we're really talking about is people in those neighborhoods. So and uh, but since you brought it up, uh, Dr. Diaz, I know you're kind of here representing your history at uh, the Ohio State University and University of Michigan. But uh, let's take it back. You know, uh, uh, where did you grow up? And, and I always think if that's a complicated question, tell us where you went to high school. <laughs> no, it's it's actually an important question. Um, you know, I grew up in Miami, Florida, um, and my parents were first generation immigrants from Cuba. And um, you know, I say it's an important question because I, I remember growing up in um, you know this multicultural, multi ethnic melting pot um, where 
um, you know, neighborhoods have played a huge uh, impact on on my upbringing and um, I think who I am today because I, I vividly remember, um, you know, crossing from one part of town to another and, um, you know, having this very visceral understanding of how um, neighborhoods and, and the people in them look different and, um, and, and how that translated into, you know, ultimately um, one's health, one's education, one's livelihood, one's wealth. Um, and from a very early age, I, I, frankly, I was, I was quite, um, struck by, by some of the differences that, you know, a couple, uh, city blocks might, uh, might mean for, for individuals that I was, um, you know, growing up with or, or even, um, you know, going to school with. And, um, so I think from a very early age, um, you know, Miami kind of, uh, gave me a, a little bit of a, of an education on, um, you know, what neighborhoods might mean for, for one's, um, outcome and one's life. So in, in that context, then, uh, why don't you explain for us in a couple of sentences um, what question did you hope to answer with your research? And you and I spoke on the phone recently about a couple different papers. So, um, you know, your research group, what are you trying to answer? And, you know, what is the framework by which you hope to answer those questions with the work you're doing? Yeah, so, you know, um, a couple of my collaborators and I are very interested in um, the way that we design hospitals, the way that we design health systems, and ultimately the way that we design cities around, um, you know, their infrastructure around providing health care for, for their residents. Um, so, you know, a couple of years ago, we were very interested in answering the question of, you know, what does uh, an investment in health care, an investment in a community um, you know, how does that translate into better health? And it, the reality is there's, there's, um, it's really hard to answer that question with, um, current data because, you know, those investments are either not tracked well or, um, are still sort of, um, you know, developing and work, we're collecting data on those things. But, you know, uh, as many of your listeners might know about redlining and, you know, the historical context around that, we, we had this kind of, you know, somewhat unique opportunity to kind of look back at the counterfactual. And that is, you know, what happens when you disinvest in a neighborhood? Um, so we we had the idea of, of using that um, essentially that, that that case study in redlining um, uh, and looking back in time at the neighborhoods that had been historically redlined and historically disinvested in and uh, essentially following them over time into to the modern day um, and asking, you know, what sort of outcomes, uh, health outcomes do patients living in those neighborhoods that were historically redlined have today, you know, 50, 60 years after redlining has, quote unquote, been, been deemed illegal. Um and what we find is that, you know, you know, history kind of, um, you know, continues to to impact these communities. And um, the effect is pretty, you know, horrifying. Uh, you know, we found that patients that are living in red line uh, neighborhoods today in, you know, 2020, uh, 2020, when the study was done, um, you know, have a greater odds of having a complication after surgery, have greater odds of dying after surgery, um, have greater odds of having a later presentation for for surgery. Um, so. So, you know, decades later, uh, we see this impact that, that this historical policy continues to have on residents from these neighborhoods. Right. And as you mentioned, your um, experience and analysis is uh, very much influenced by your perspective 
growing up in Miami, and you know we're we're on the air in New York City, uh, but I'm from uh, Baltimore, which in many ways, you know, we sort of in a macabre way sort of take um, credit for the um, invention of redlining, the, the you know legalization of racism and housing statutes, in particular, I think in 1910 or so, um, was first codified in Baltimore, as far as I know. Um, and uh, but however, in your particular study, and correct me if I'm wrong. What you have used, and you're not the first, is um, some sort of publications out of the U.S. government. Uh, the years, the earliest ones that I rec- recognize, around 1933, the so- so-called Homeowners Loan Corporation, which, you know, where the red lines, how they mapped out um, decisions about investment, divestment. Um, you know, a friend of mine in Baltimore talks about redlining and subpriming. Um, but was from, you know, that HOLC, Homeowner Loan Corporation, uh, from 1933. Um, so I'm, uh, the point that I want to get to in that is that it's important how do we um, define and how do we recognize um, that kind of uh, structural disinvestment, structural racism, and things like that. Um, anything else you wanted to add to that question besides what I've just mentioned about uh, the HOLC? No, that that's that's right on point. You know, um, we like you alluded to. We the study was not you know novel in that we were the first to do this. There, there's many other uh, people who have uh, done similar studies um, using these these historical redlining maps uh, that were uh, created and drawn by the HLC that you alluded to. Um, but I think your question is an important one. You know, how do we um, you know I think you know how do we break from this sort of uh, this this trajectory um, and you know, it's a complicated question. I think that, you know, the, you know, as we alluded to in our study towards the end, you know, the, the Biden administration has, has, you know, at least called out, um, the, these, these atrocities and, um, have taken some steps to, um, invest in some of these communities through the CARES Act and, and some, um, and, and some other, uh, recent policies. But, um, you know, do we know what the, uh, you know, what the impact of these policies are going to be? Um, you know, not yet. That's, I think that'll be something that we have to keep an eye on. But, um, you know, uh, I think we just, it, is it going to be enough? Probably not. And, um, you know, I think we continue to kind of have to do this work to continue to improve and, and shape these neighborhoods in, in a more uh, equitable way so that everyone um, living in and around them can, um, you know, have the same opportunities. Uh, and so in, in your research, you were specifically looking at um, at surgical outcomes and complications from some common, uh, I think a, a handful of uh, five surgical, um, common surgical procedures. And as I say, mentioned before, how we measure something, how we recognize something is really important. So I don't know, do you want to say anything about, you know, what procedures you chose um, and anything else about how you decided to look at these questions of quality that, you know, influence how you interpret the, the outcomes? Yeah. So, you know, I, I guess uh, someone might ask, like, so, you know, why does a surgeon, uh, you know, care about these questions and, and why, why, why specifically patients who are undergoing surgery? And, and it's, a, it's a valid question. Um, the, you know, taking a step back, most of us uh, will on average have about seven to 11 operations in our lifetime. So um, it's not, uh, you know, it's not a healthcare service that, that most of us get through life without ever having to access. Um, so um, that's one reason. The other reason is surgery um, is about 50% of uh, Medicare's budget each year. So um, it's 
uh, not only is it something we all experience, it's something that uh, the government, um, you know, invests largely in each year. Um, and then finally, you know, for most of us, uh, surgery is an acute event. It is, um, you know, a relatively life uh, altering event, um, especially in emergency surgery um, that is, you know, unplanned for. But but even elective surgeries can can be, um, you know, pretty shocking uh, for individuals. So, you know, with those three things in mind as a surgeon, um, you know, I'm also acutely aware that for many of our patients, um, and you could comment on this, it, it, you know, a surgery might be the first time or the only time that an individual might uh, interact with the healthcare system um, for a myriad of reasons, whether that's trust or uh, lack of insurance or underinsurance. So, so it's a real opportunity to um, capture patients um, that might not otherwise um, be in the healthcare system, uh, you know, prior to this point. Um, but to answer your specific question, you know, we chose five operations that, um, you know, from previous studies have, you know, pretty well documented are um, the five most common or five of the most common operations. Um, you know, those are things like appendectomies and cholecystectomies and col- uh, colon resection. So having your appendix, your gallbladder, your colon removed. Um, as well as uh, some heart surgery and as and uh, some hip replacements, uh, so that kind of encompasses uh, you know nearly uh, you know over 1.3 million Americans in our study period uh, who had those operations. Um, and the other important thing is that you know they're they're relatively uh, safe operations, and we um, know and and have pretty good data on what the expected outcomes for these operations are. So we know you know on average uh, how many patients you know all things being equal should have a complication or a readmission or, or, or God forbid, a death. Um, so then with that sort of data, we can start to compare outliers and variation um, away from the from the mean or the norm. So uh, it, it becomes a useful, uh, you know, uh, information to have when you're looking at these big national trends. Um, and that allowed us to make some of these um, associations and comparisons across neighborhoods. All right. So, so fair enough. And and, uh, and actually, I, I thought this, I don't know if I said it out, out loud on the air, but some of the previous work looking at how the redlining maps of the uh, U.S. government, specifically that 1933 and, and subsequent homeownership loan corporation maps, have influenced, uh, for example, violence in Philadelphia. I think one of our previous guests, Jessica Beard, was a co-author on that paper, um, looking at, at how those maps predicted where, you know, gunshots, uh, gunshot victims would be across Philadelphia, you know, 50, 70, uh, and more years later. <clears throat> Um, but so fair enough. We we know that you know these red line neighborhoods and and a lot of that was racially coded, um, and and how racism plays out. You know we know that that's going to hurt people. What do we do with this information? Yeah, um, you know it's 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 a uh, you know it's an important question that I you know if I had a you know clear cut answer, um, you know hopefully uh, we might be able to do something about it. But I think it's you know like most things and with complex problems and especially in healthcare, it's uh, it's an iterative process. I think we you know have to chip away at it and. You know, uh, I think that in healthcare, um, we've started to kind of understand that the, the neighborhood and where patients live is just as impactful or perhaps even more impactful than, than the hospital that one, uh, you know, goes to seek care. So as a healthcare provider, um, you know, I am thrilled and happy to see that, um, hospitals and, and healthcare providers are, uh, going to start to be judged and, and compensated for in the way that they care for patients from across all neighborhoods um, and you know beyond that hospitals are um, going to be expected to invest in the neighborhoods not just um, 
you know, in, in their own infrastructure, but the, the, the cities and the neighborhoods that, that they live in and, and the cities and neighborhoods that the patients that they treat come from. Um, and they're going to be graded on that. And they're, um, you know, these are some of the policies that are coming down in the pipeline that uh, I, I hope, um, you know, as a healthcare provider who lives in this space, I hope that, you know, it starts to move the needle a little bit on, um, you know, ways that as healthcare providers, we can improve neighborhoods. Yeah, and um, you know we uh, we're always influenced by our experience, um, and you know I'm uh, I work in Kings County uh, Hospital in Brooklyn, New York, and and of course like many other hospitals now there is at least um, and many other organizations some effort uh, or infrastructure being put in place to recognize and deal with um, inequalities, especially those based on race, gender, sexual orientation, other categories that have been defined and associated and, and using, I think, neighborhood for a hospital that serves different patient populations may be an important part of that. Um, and though I, I work in Brooklyn, I grew up in Baltimore and have experience. Um, and what I always found striking about, um, Hopkins, which is in East Baltimore, kind of on it in by itself, um, a, a line between, uh, poverty and wealth and, and different um, uh, racial and ethnic organiz- um, backgrounds in each direction. Um, but, you know, there's very different patient populations in some ways on what service you're on, you know, in cardiac surgery or surgical oncology where people are coming from around the country versus trauma surgery where most of the Baltimore area is actually funneled uh, to the trauma center, uh, shock trauma, or even um, the Hopkins affiliate uh, farther east, um, Bayview, that very different patient populations and I thought treated very differently and also approached the institution with very different experiences and you know Hopkins itself is a is a study in I could go off a whole list of studies but it always struck me about um, okay you know we work here we're trying to take care of people but we recognize this history of racism and what do we do about it and I think um, insofar as as your work adds to that um, that question is is identifying how neighborhood um, can be a part of that mathematics and, and our investment and our response to the future. Um, anything else you would want to add to that about um, how we can use uh, your research on um, hospital uh, quality, surgical quality, uh, and the neighborhood of the patient where they come from? Yeah, no, I think you bring up a you know a ton of great points, and and Baltimore itself is is a case study that you know we can we can talk about a myriad of things, and it's it's such a um, you know hub for for all the things that we're sort of talking about in this conversation, from both hospital quality with with Hopkins all the way you know back to the 1910s and and, and redlining as you were alluding to earlier, um, but you know in some of the the other work that that we've done more recently, uh, I think a lot of uh, folks start to, um, you know, bring up the idea of what you were just alluding to that, you know, hospitals uh, take care of a myriad of patients from different neighborhoods. And, um, you know, how does that sort of, uh, you know, how does the hospital itself translate into delivering outcomes for patients? Or in other words, does a high is a high quality hospital better at, um, you know, treating patients from different neighborhoods? Or, you know, the counterfactual that uh, some some uh, some might argue is that you know poor neighborhoods have poor quality hospitals and you know thereby um, you know have poor outcomes. Um, and some of the things we've more recently demonstrated is that you know the reality that anyone who works at a hospital. 
hospital knows that patients come from, you know, all parts of, of town, all parts of the, the city and, and all parts of life, um, you know, and uh, like, I'm sure that you've experienced um, in your hospitals here at Ohio State. We, you know, we're kind of in between uh, a myriad of different uh, neighborhoods with different affluence, and um, it really is like a you know melting pot of of you know neighborhoods and cultures and and uh, backgrounds. So, and that's what the data sort of bears out. Um, you know, it's not that. Uh, patients from poor neighborhoods go to poor quality hospitals. Um, you know, they, it's actually, uh, you know, patients from all types of neighborhoods go to all types of hospitals. Uh, so the next, you know, natural question is like, so what does hospital quality mean for patients from across different neighborhoods? Um, and, you know, what we find is that it's probably an additive, additive effect. Um, you know, as expected, patients from the most affluent neighborhoods at the best hospitals have the best outcomes. And, you know, vice versa, the worst quality hospitals, um, with the worst, uh, with the least affluent, uh, patients have the worst outcomes. But in between there, you know, it gets, it gets a little bit muddy. And, um, what ultimately bears out in the data is that, um, it's, it's additive. So, um, you know, the hospital quality can uh, overcome some of the um, things that the, the some of the negative effects of one's neighborhood, but uh, it doesn't get you quite there. And I think that's important because you know in healthcare we we you know almost obsess on hospital quality and all these hospital quality metrics that um, year after year we're we're sort of incentivized to hit and, and meet. But the reality is that you know the data is bearing out that that's not going to be enough um, to deliver equitable healthcare to all our patients. Um, to achieve that, I think the data is starting to bear out that we have to leave the hospital walls, we have to go out into the communities um, because that's where health begins. You know, health begins outside of the hospital walls. You know, at the hospital, we deliver medical care, but we're not, you know, we're not delivering health care. Um, and, and I think the data is kind of bearing that out. And uh, I'm encouraged uh, to see, as we were alluding to earlier, some of the policies in the pipeline that are encouraging hospitals um, or incentivizing hospitals to do that, to you know, provide health care beyond their, their four walls of the hospital and, and out into the community. Well, one of the last questions I wanted to ask you shared uh, with me earlier off air that um, your interest and your specialty uh, of, of focus is uh, surgical oncology. Um, only a small percentage of the surgeries in, in your study uh, were cancer surgeries. Anything else that you want to um, talk about in your field of interest, uh, you know, your, your surgical field, your clinical field of uh, cancer surgery and how that intersects with these issues of uh, inequality and, and disparate uh, outcomes based on, you know, race, economics, neighborhood, et cetera? Yeah, no, absolutely. Um, so this is, um, you know, not part of, like you alluded to, not part of the study that um, we've been talking about uh, today. But um, in some upcoming studies, we, we sort of focus on this question. And I think, um Cancer in particular um, has this this unique quality that makes it interesting to to study disparities um, and especially disparities from the neighborhood that you come from, uh, because for for a lot of cancers, um, you know, as as a surgeon, I, I want to meet my patients early in in their disease process. That's where we have the most uh, treatment modalities, whether it's surgery, chemotherapy, radiation. Um, the earlier, the better prognosis, the better outcome, um, the better chance at long-term survival for patients. Um, so the counterfactual is true. You know, when you present at a, with a later stage, um, you know, the disease is more advanced, the, the treatment options are more limited. Um, 
so that in itself um, provides a an interesting and an important outcome that we can we can look at in the data and study. And that is, you know, at what stage of your disease do you uh, first present to to the hospital or to your healthcare provider? Um, and and that's a little bit of a, a unique thing in cancer that we can leverage. And um, you know, this is uh, a little bit of uh, talking about a little bit of unpublished data here. But you know, you might not be surprised to find that what we find is. Uh, patients who uh, are living in uh, more deprived neighborhoods um, or neighborhoods that have been historically redlined, they tend to present later uh, in their disease course or with a with a higher stage of cancer um, uh, compared to patients who uh, are coming from more affluent neighborhoods. Um, and as you might imagine, you know, no one would be surprised by it. That translates into poor outcomes, uh, lower long term. Uh, survival, uh, lower rates of cure. So um, in, in the cancer world, this, this stuff is important too. Um, and, you know, it, it, it's we have, for many cancers like breast and colon in particular, we have great screening tools like mammography and colonoscopy. We have great treatment modalities that, um, you know, we get uh, long-term survival close to and upwards of 95% when we catch these diseases early. Um, so it is a real travesty uh, when we can identify neighborhoods and, and uh, parts of the country where, um, you know, patients are presenting commonly with stage three and four uh, advanced cancers um, compared to some of perhaps their neighbors across town that are routinely, um, you know, presenting with early stage cancers. Um, so it, it's, it's, a, it's certainly something I'm interested in. It's an important area to study um, and um, we need more interventions to um, help us rectify this, this inequality. Definitely. And of course, uh, for everyone out there in radio land, you are uh, listening to trauma code on WBAI, uh, in New York city. And we have, uh, on the air, I am Dr. Simon Fitzgerald in studio. And we have our, our guest, uh, by way of the Midwest, uh, Dr. Adrian Diaz talking about, um, inequalities in surgical outcomes and how the neighborhood where the patient is from, uh, influences their outcome. Uh, and, uh, you know, as, as we kind of wrap up our conversation, uh, Adrian, um, I always like to ask, well, first of all, before I get to the cultural piece, anything else about your research that is important to talk about, uh, that we haven't yet uh, mentioned? Yeah, you know, I think the last thing I would say about, you know, my research and, and our, our research group is I think we're, um, you know, trying to be a little bit unique and, uh, you know, all the things that we're talking about here today, um, we're, we're trying to, you know, influence health outcomes through through policy um, and I think you know historically a lot of my colleagues have you know focused on hospital-based interventions but you know I, I think that um, you know we need more than than just that and um, you know I, I, I we focus a lot on you know how our research questions and answers can inform policymakers um, in in improving the health and the quality of life of, of all of our patients so you know I hope that you know, we're, we're just, uh, you know, one brick in, in that bridge to, to get there. Um, but, you know, I, I'm grateful for opportunities like this, um, and everything that you're doing to kind of help, uh, you know, spread, uh, this, this work and, and continue to, um, make our patients' lives better. Well, it's certainly been a pleasure of having you on the air, and uh, one of the benefits of uh, doing this work is getting to talk to interesting people who we might not have an excuse to conver uh, have a conversation otherwise. And, uh, you know, speaking of which, while you ha I have you on the air, you know, when we first came on, I was talking about the Grammys, uh, hip-hop, and Beyonce as we started. But any cultural recommendations while you have our ear uh, that you want to share with the audience? 
Yeah, I'm I'm a bit of a of a book nerd, so um, I have a uh, book a couple book recommendations. I think we talked a lot about redlining, so you know anyone who's interested in learning more about redlining, I think the the Color of Law by Richard Rothstein is uh, pretty much mandatory reading, um, and has certainly influenced me a lot in in everything that I've learned uh, over the years on this topic. Uh, and then I think the the more recent book that has really uh, influenced me and, and helped uh, clarify some of my thinking around around these topics uh, and in particular in, in the way we can influence policy is uh, Heather McGee's book The Sum of Us. Um, and I think it's a it's a really great book um, to sort of uh, explains and um, gives us really concrete examples of how systemic racism and, and structural racism. Um, Really impacts us all, not just the you know the, the people of color or people from disenfranchised neighborhoods, um, but it, it's really um, uh, an issue that we all should be paying attention to because it all influences us all. Um, so those are two books that um, you know I, I recommend to anyone who who asks me for recommendations off my bookshelf um, and have really influenced my my thinking on a lot a lot of these topics. Excellent, and you know, um, you reached out to me or, or we finally connected this morning, and so I didn't quite have the chance to prepare uh for having a miami cuban on the air because um i don't know if I, if we spoke about this but i spent about 12 months a year of my life in cuba <clears throat> and post-revolutionary cuban art um has been very influential on me and certainly there i don't know what, what your experience growing up with um cuban you know contemporary cuban musicians and i've seen chucho valdez uh the pianist live uh in los bamban uh, the legendary uh, salsa band, uh, who's, I forget, the, the main uh, driver of that um, died in 2014, but I was down there in, in 2000 and 2001 and seen them since then. Um, and, of course, hip-hop was big when I was there, Orishas. Um, and since then, um, Aldeanos, a uh, very fascinating history of a, a hip-hop artist uh, who pushed the line of what was acceptable in Cuba during that kind of rapprochement with the U.S. Um, and ended up having to leave and go to the U uh, live in Miami. And his actually interaction with the CIA and all these other things is fascinating. I don't know if that's been a book written about it, but it needs to be. Um, uh, but... The music that actually most touched me and I think influenced me, and, and I've, I've said a lot, and you can feel free to respond in any way that you want, but if you're not familiar with that Nueva Trova sound uh, from the Cube, uh, mostly the 60s and 70s, but uh, in Pablo Milanes and Silvio Rodriguez, but continuing to the 80s with Frank Delgado, um, I would definitely recommend to you, and I'm going to have to play some on the air a little bit later when I have a chance to prepare. <coughs> that was a lot, Adrian. Anything you have to say about that? No, I mean, you just, uh, you know, I was very nostalgic. I was, uh, you know, thinking back to, to my childhood, listening, um, to my parents, um, music and, um, just, you know, I had, I, uh, I had an opportunity to, to go to Cuba, um, about five or six years ago now. Um, and I, and like you, I, I, I lived there for about three months. Um, and, and it was just, um, it, it was, it was amazing. Um, you know, living there and experiencing a lot of this culture that I, I grew up with in Miami, but wasn't, you know, it was just far enough removed. Um, and it was all, you know, kind of like through my parents and, and, and my grandparents and, and hearing them talk about the way things, things are and were in Cuba. Um, but, but certainly, uh, you know, you, you brought me back in time kind of mentioning um, and talking about some of the music you were just alluding to because it, it brought me back to my childhood in Miami. Um, and now as I'm in this frigid winter in the Midwest, I'm feeling a little bit warmer now just thinking about that. 
All right. Well, excellent. Thank you so much for joining us, uh, Adrian. Uh, and reach out if I can help you any point uh, during your journey, if we'll be in the same place, same time. I appreciate your work, and it's been fun to have you on the air here in uh, WBI Trauma Code in New York City. Yeah, thank you so much. It was an honor and a pleasure. All right. Reggie, why don't you give us a little musical interlude while we continue the show? On stage, rocking out stir crazy. Coco Flora, like 1980s. Come lit, still I drop lazy. None of that maybe. Energy. 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 Just five. Phone now, 45. Don't get out of line. Yeah. Ooh, 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 ooh. Pick a side. Only double lines we cross is dollar signs, yeah. Ooh, 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 hold up, wait. I hear you just got paid, making rain, energy. She more can't go, he more Been waving the room, the crowd gon' move. Look around, everybody on mute. Look around, it's me and my group, big energy. It was on stop mode, got phones, phones from Pittsburgh, no Welcome back to Trauma Code on uh, WBAI in New York City. This is Dr. Simon Fitzgerald in studio. We just had on Dr. Adrian Diaz. Uh, out of the Midwest and his recent research on um, how uh, the uh, neighborhood of the patient influences for better or for worse the outcomes of the patient uh, having surgery. And this has, of course, been a part of a larger discussion of, you know, structural racism and, and how divestment and investment in different areas can influence people's outcome um, and how exclusion, uh, even within the same institution, can mean some people do better and some people do worse. Um, so thank you again for uh, joining us. And we've been talking about uh, the 50th anniversary of hip hop. If anyone saw the Grammys last night and that, of course, the music we just heard was the uh, record breaking Grammy winner, uh, Beyonce herself. I think that song was Energy, N-I-G. Sometimes it's not like they're saying, but um, that uh, sort of uh, maybe a B-side track, if you could still say that in 2023 from her new album, Renaissance. Um, that uh, won so many awards last night. Uh, and so, you know, you're listening to uh, Trauma Code on WBAI, and if you appreciate what we do, we appreciate you and uh, would appreciate your support. I'm here for free as a volunteer, but it takes 
uh, money to keep the station going and to pay the staff to take care and run everything. And that pledge number is 212-209-2950, 212-209-2950, or online at uh, give to WBAI or WBAI.org. Uh, and, uh, you know, we have a couple of minutes, and uh, we've been doing this for a couple of months. So, New York, I'm going to ask you to be on your best behavior, uh, and I'm going to solicit some phone calls uh, to Trauma Code on WBAI. If you have uh, any uh, reactions to what you've been hearing on our show, either today or in the, you know, every Monday at 2 p.m., or issues uh, related uh, to trauma and cultures and outcomes and and community uh, that you want to hear about. Um, I can tell you a little bit later on the show what to expect uh, for the next month or so uh, in terms of guests. But if you have people in New York, organizations in New York, work in New York, that uh, you want a light shine upon them or even just to learn more about that you're curious, uh, you can call in at uh, 212-209-2877. That call in number 212-209-2877. 2877, but you can also um, find us out there in the ether on the interwebs. Um, we uh, have an email, trauma code WBAI at gmail.com. We have uh, a Twitter, trauma code WBAI is the handle. And I think on Instagram, also now, trauma code WBAI. Um, we'll be putting out, you know, uh, graphics for every show, trying to uh, introduce more visuals and, 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 more interesting uh, content for each episode and for all the work that we do. Um, so if you want to follow that, definitely go online. Or uh, if you want to reach out to us, uh, definitely you can do that either through the website or through that social media that I just mentioned. So, Reggie, why don't we tee up um, some uh, music while people get ready to, to, to call in. Um, and we've been featuring... Um, uh, especially various hip-hop, uh, recognizing those 50 years since that famous, uh, infamous, mythical, whatever you want to call it, uh, Bronx basement or, or rec center party uh, on Sedgwick Avenue with uh, Cool Herc. Uh, 50 years of hip-hop, and so um, in that medley last night on the Grammys, one that kind of uh, stood out and resonated with uh, me and my co-host, uh, Cassandra Raphael, was that UNITY, uh, that Queen Latifah song. So why don't we, um, if we have a chance, uh, load that up or whatever else we got ready to go. Somebody was catching the rap. Then the little one said, "Yeah, me." And laughed. 
Since he was with his boys, he tried to break fly. I punched him dead in his eyes. Trauma Code. This is Dr. Simon Fitzgerald in studio, uh, WBAI in New York City, and we're going to take a couple of calls. Uh, uh, this is WBAI. You are on the air. Yes, good afternoon. Uh, I would like to ask you for the name, the names of the books that Dr. Diaz uh, just told about. I didn't get to write them down. I didn't get to hear the second fair, one. Fair enough. You know what? I'm going uh, to have to Get back to you before the end of the show. I'll have Dr. Diaz write them down for me, and I'll let you know. Thank you for that question. Okay. Next caller. Next caller. Hello? Yeah, you are on the air, WBAI. Yeah, I'm calling from Brooklyn. My name is Mitch. Uh, I would like to know the infant mortality rate in our community is much higher than any other ethnic group. Do you think that's due to uh, redlining, or is it... Uh, uh, because of the maltreatment that we're getting at hospitals, or what that, do you think it is? That, that's an excellent question, and, and you know, I do not have the data uh, in front of me to answer it, so I'm going to have to be a little bit cautious not to say anything beyond my knowledge. But um, I think all these things play together. You know, I, I think um, we know a lot of things that influence infant mortality. Uh, you know, including poisoning of. Uh, the mother, for example, nutrition of the mother, these are all things that before you even get to the hospital, um, issues of poverty and access to good food and exposure to toxins like lead and alcohol and drugs and other things um, are very influential. <clears throat> um, but I, you know, it, and I think it depends on the situation, but we always have to be suspicious that racism and how people are treated, you know, f in the street to the door and all the way through our institutions are going to influence their outcomes, you know, issues related to um, recognizing and treating uh, pain appropriately and um, and specifically black women and, and um, expectant mothers uh, has all been well described. And that is how racism can affect how we recognize and treat emergencies, you know. So I think the there's no one answer to your question, but I think it's the right question. Um, and I think hopefully I've, I've helped to address it a, a little bit. All right. Well, well, thank you. All right. Uh, anyone else on the air? Who's the next caller? Hello? Yes. Uh, you're on the air. Hello? Yes, my name is Dr. Don Dixon. I'm on. We hear you. Dr. Dixon, go on. Yep, my name is Dr. Don Dixon. I'm a, a retired uh, physician. I trained at Harlem Hospital from 1979. I was an attending there until uh, 2010. Uh, uh, you have an excellent program. Thank you very much for that. Oh, well, thank you very much yeah. for that. Okay. You know, um, for a future show, you might want to consider trying to get Ollie Fine uh, from Physicians for a National Health Program on. Oh, a good idea. Talking about, talking about uh, the push for uh, Medicare for all, everybody in, nobody out. That's um, a program that um, if New York State had adopted it in 2014, for instance, uh, New York State would have saved an aggregate $14 billion. That's with a B. Wow. Um, um, also, um, uh, Dr. Fine was part of a group called the Lincoln Brigade back in the late 60s, early 70s, where they um, 
you know, to, uh, try to um, upgrade what was happening in Lincoln Hospital when it was on Southern Boulevard. Yeah, and, and I, I want to uh, thank you, uh, Dr. Dayson, you said? Um, Excellent. And, you know, the the Lincoln Collective is what I always grew up calling them. Um, And uh, I know that history of um, uh, the Brown Berets, I guess the young lords who who took over the hospital in uh, in, in Lincoln Hospital, protesting bad outcomes and poor treatment. Um, And, you know, there's an unspoken history that I'm going to have to follow up on this show is that um, my father uh, was drawn to the Bronx by the, the, the history, recent history at that time of the Lincoln Collective. Uh, and my father did a residency in Lincoln Hospital um, and, oh, was, and was a president of the uh, Union of, uh, of Residents and uh, Fellows, um, CIR, um, uh, after that experience and, and uh, has, has a deep history in, in the, the history of the city hospitals and the people working with them and the communities that, that they're served to try to demand um, proper treatment and, and, and a say in how things are run. So I appreciate you okay. calling and all that history is very one, much appreciated. Other other we have one, one more minute. Okay, sure. Uh, you might also want to get uh, uh, Dr. Mary Bassett, former state health commissioner, former New York City. These are probably uh, all friends of my parents, by the way. Uh, yeah, okay, so you should try and get her on and give her perspective. Excellent. And that book by uh, uh, Rothstein is called The Color of um, Law. The Color of Law. That's correct. And, and, and I, red light. Dr. Diaz had just red texted light. me that the two books that the previous caller had asked about were The Color of Law by Richard Rothstein, as you just mentioned, and The Sum of Us uh, by Heather McGee. So uh, yes. th- thank you, Dr. Dayson. Feel free to reach out and we'll talk offline. I appreciate all your recommendations. All right, thank you. And we're coming up, uh, bumping up along the end of the hour. So, um, anyone else on the line? So why don't we uh, why don't we have a little musical interlude as we wrap up the program? Uh, thank you, everybody, for listening. I appreciate anybody who called in or even thought about it. I appreciate you listening. <clears throat> this has been Trauma Code on WBAI in New York City, and you can find us online at wbai.org. Also, just search Trauma Code wherever you find your podcast. But don't forget to support the station, 212-209-2950, 212-209-2950, WBAI.org. Thank you for listening.
on Tuesdays from 5 to 6 p.m. for the Independent News Hour, the weekly radio show of the Independent, New York City's radical newspaper. Each week, we speak with the activists, organizers, and social movement thought leaders who are fighting for a more just and equitable New York. That's the Independent News Hour, Tuesdays, 5 to 6 p.m., only here on WBAI 99.5 FM. Go vaccination.